Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tax Security Podcast. To listen to more episodes and to view the show notes for each episode, go to www.cisco.com slash go slash tax security podcast. Hey, everyone, and welcome to episode number 10 of the Tax Security Podcast, where our panel of experts discuss all things Cisco security, including configuration, troubleshooting, new features, and hot issues being seen by the Cisco technical assistance security teams. Today, we're going to be uh, briefly discussing some of the industry trade shows that we've attended, um, and we're also going to be talking about some changes and new features in the new ASA version 8.3. So first, I'll uh, briefly introduce our panel. Today, we have David White, Jr., Blaine Dreyer, and Magnus Mortensen, and myself, Jay Johnston. Um, let me first uh, address a request some of our listeners have, <laughs> have uh, sent in, and that is for a CCI update from Magnus. So Magnus, where are you on the CCIE? All right, so... Uh, and, and I must say that we've had quite a number of requests as to uh, how Magnus is doing. So I so have I, a fan base. Give him a good answer. Uh, well, I don't necessarily have a good answer, but I have some answer. So I uh, went to go uh, schedule the next rendition of the lab and found that, lo and behold, I'm past the 12 months since my last lab attempt back mm. on the uh, previous version. So that means I get to take the written again. That really Yay. means you're just a slacker. Sort yeah. of. I will agree to both of those. And you've already gotten married, so what is, is there, do you have? Is there a lesson to be learned there? With what, can you tell sun our, flares. what can you tell our listeners? Yeah, what's the lesson learned for our listeners? Um, don't drop the ball. Mm. Because, uh, you know, looking at the material now, it's, you know, I know the firewall stuff, hey, I support it 24-7, but the, uh, the rest of it, it's kind of all new again. So. Going back and kind of flipping back around and starting from scratch, not the greatest feeling, but hey, it's like I'm in the boat with the rest of our listeners who are just starting to look at this again. <laughs> That's right. So. Well, we also got uh, another shout out to uh, Bartlett from the UK, and he wanted to uh, tell all you listeners out there that um, there's been some new CCIE flashcards produced by Yusuf Bahaji, and uh, they're called CCIE Security Version 3.0 Certificate Flashcards and you can get them from ciscopress.com. And he said they're very useful in studying for the CCIs, as the lab, as well as the um, questions that they ask you at the beginning of the lab, the qualification questions. And so they were just published in March, and he said, uh, everyone go ahead and check them out because they're uh, pretty useful. So just wanted to mention that. Dave, my birthday's coming up. Do you mind? Uh, <laughs> He's going to need it. Some. Yeah. We're going to get a Magnus uh, uh, CCIE flashcard fund. You can all send in via PayPal, and we'll buy them for Magnus, and that'll hopefully help them out. And any money we have left over will go to a rockin' party when I fail again. Oh, Aww. That's not going to happen. Okay, guys, <laughs> uh, let's talk about industry trade shows uh, for a minute here. Um, obviously, ones we're specifically familiar with is Cisco Live, uh, a.k.a. Networkers. Um, that's a, a, tra you know, a networking show put on by Cisco. It's uh, really there so that our customers can get educated about our product technologies, and they can go to different classes for tr uh, troubleshooting and for learning about our products and, and solutions. Um, the good thing about it is that there's, there's little marketing and there's a lot of really good, solid technical information. Um, some of the things that we offer during uh, Cisco Live are free on-site exam testing and CCIE testing. You've got to pre-register for that, but that is available um, if, if you want to take advantage of it. Right, and, and uh, if you don't get the opportunity to schedule for in advance, if you show up and there's any available slots, then they'll only charge you 50% of uh, what the actual cost is. But obviously, schedule those in advance, you get free certification testing, so that's a real benefit. 
There's also different tracks that you can attend. Uh, you can sort of sign up for a specific track uh, at Networkers or Cisco Live so that if your focus is on something technical like, say, wireless or security or SAN or voice over IP, then um, you can get auto-recommended for certain classes that are going to be in that track, and you can focus on that. Yeah, the other thing I'd say about the tracks is when scheduling the classes um, for the people that are actually we create these courses, um, we actually look and make sure that we don't have class overlap. So if you're taking a security track um, and you're interested in a certain security technology area, then the tr classes will be laid out so that they don't overlap. So um, there is schedule builders that you can build uh, you know, within a track to make sure that uh, you get all the classes that you're interested in. So some of the things that uh, we participate in at Cisco Live, uh, specifically in the TAC, oh, are... Before we jump onto that, though, too, there's, there's also other um, not as technical tracks, I guess, that were introduced in the last couple of years. So there's a track for um, IT management for, you know, for those of you that are listening or for your bosses, you can let them know that there's a track for the IT managers, which more focuses on the business side and, and the IT side of the business. Um, and so that's, that's interesting. There's also an IT executive track, uh, but that one's by invite only and it's for C-level um, uh, attendees. Okay, and, and it specifically the TAC helps out. Um, there's what we call the world of solutions where uh, it's a big open floor where a lot of our uh, Cisco partners have set up booths and you can learn about their different solutions, uh, different um, vendors and that sort of thing. Also, uh, there's a section called the Technical Solutions Clinic where there's a lot of different stations and you can walk right in and um, get directed towards uh, a TAC group. Usually, uh, say for the firewall group, there's going to be three, two or three of us standing there ready to just take your questions uh, right there on the spot. You can show up. We've got, um, we've got a whiteboard set up and we can lab out network diagrams and answer questions that you have. And that's a good place to stop off. Um, if, you go to a, if you go to a presentation and then you've got 15 minutes to kill before the next presentation, stop by, say hey to everybody, um, say hey to us. Uh, some of us should be there. And if you have any questions that the previous presentation raised or you have a question about your network or um, just it's a good opportunity to stop by and, and meet the TAC engineer and discuss it. Um, specifically, this upcoming Cisco Live, which is going to be held at the end of June in Las Vegas, um, some of us here on the panel of this show are going to be doing some presentations. Specifically, David White, um, why don't you talk about the presentation you're going to be doing? Sure. So uh, one of the presentations is called Troubleshooting Firewalls, and that class is uh, BRK SEC 3020. And basically, we'll go into both the ASA and FWSM and walking through some in-depth troubleshooting. It's a two-hour class, um, but, uh, you know, if you guys are interested in it, those listeners, come up, uh, attend it, but make sure after the class you come by and stop by and say, hey, hi, because I'd love to, love to meet you there. There's another uh, course that David and I are going to be uh, presenting. It's a hands-on troubleshooting lab. It's, it's LTRSEC-3020, and the goal of that is that um, students will be able to have hands-on experience with a live ASA that uh, will spend time teaching about certain troubleshooting techniques, and then we will have um, our students run through lab scenarios to solve problems using those techniques that we, that we just presented on. Right, so, and that's the first time, um, you know, this class, you know, Jay and I created the class. It's the first time it's been run at Networkers, so uh, we're very excited about having a hands-on learning lab, and we think, uh, you know, hopefully that uh, students can benefit a lot out of having that. And to piggyback on that, we're also introducing an eight-hour class which isn't a lab, but it is going to be a, what they call a tectorial, and it's called TechSec 2020. Um, and it's going to cover the ASA in its entirety. So basically, you know, how can you get the most out of your ASA? So we'll talk about everything from you know, the different models and the different performance characteristics, not 
necessarily what marketing says about them or what the data sheets are, but about real world performance that we've seen um, as tech engineers and you know what the different capabilities are. How do you understand when the box is under stress and what you monitor? Um, we'll talk about things like the content security module, the IPS module, um, SSL VPN, uh, deployment scenarios of all the different technologies, and common um, gotchas or common troubleshooting issues that customers run into. So it's a more, much more holistic class that focuses on basically all the features of the ASA. So if you're interested in this uh, podcast here, um, it'd be a, maybe a good opportunity to get some uh, more information that is similar to what you hear uh, and refer to the show notes for the specific uh, Cisco Live uh, course names. So another uh, industry trade show besides net, uh, Cisco Live and Networkers is Black Hat. Blaine, you've been to Black Hat, so tell us how it's different and what its focus is. Yeah, so Black Hat's focus is completely centered around security, and there are a lot of teams of people that go up and do presentations on uh, vulnerabilities that they found and exploits they've written, and they really give you a breakdown by a PowerPoint and discussion on how they executed their, their exploitation. Okay. And how does how is Black Hat different from DEF CON? Because I know the same people kind of run both conferences. Yeah, I'd say DEF CON is a lot more relaxed. Um, there's, there's a lot less structure. I mean, you still have timetables and schedules and whatnot, but... But Black Hat is extremely structured in that you go in to learn a very specific thing and you come out with knowledge on, on that particular vulnerability. Uh, DEF CON is more of a, I would say a social event where there are definitely presentations, but there's a lot more um, back and forth for, for cool stuff to do you know, there. Um, so DEF CON, um, Jay and I have actually been, along with a group of, what was it, like 12, 15 other people, and uh, we hung out there for a couple of days and we played a game of Capture the Flag uh, security vulnerability style. So, ha do you remember that? Yeah, it was good. They set up uh, a series of servers, and then you're on Teams, and the goal is to hack into the servers or gain access to the servers, change a flag on the server. So, like, change the default website to read your team's name, and then for as long as you hold that, you keep the points. And that was pretty good. We got, I think, we got third place. Yeah, it's, it's pretty awesome. You all sit around a circular table with your laptops flipped open, and and you've got to deal with uh, other team members walking over to your table and eavesdropping, you know, behind your back, looking at your laptop screen. And uh, you know, you're not allowed to attack the other team people, but you can attack the servers that the DEFCON people set up and uh, change flags. And I remember we did some tricky things with ARP to get around the rules. They said no firewalls once you break into a PC and. We didn't put a firewall on, but we did do some static ARP entries. Yeah, well, that and were we'll stop there so that we can keep winning. But um, <laughs> but it was a really fun event. Okay, and David, tell us about Interop because that's one I'm not as familiar with. Yeah, so Interop isn't uh, security focused, but it's more um, the whole telecommunications industry or networking focused. Um, and you know, one of the reasons I like occasionally attending some of these different trade shows, and we're not saying you know every year it's a good thing to go to them, but it is good to go to some of these because you get more broad exposure. So a lot of times where focused in on just security stuff, but you go to some of these other trade shows that are more holistic and you can sit down and get up to date with what's going on in SAN or what's going up with um, you know, energy conservation in buildings and networking smart buildings um, or, or some other things and learn from a lot of different partners. And there's a lot of you know, panel discussions at Interop, so a lot of different CIOs and CEOs are there and talking about the future of, of the industry and where we're headed and where we're going and also how you know, the changes that are happening in the, in the industry. So it, you know, keeps you up to date and make sure you're on your toes. So it's a, it's just a good experience to uh, get exposure to, I think. And all these conferences are worldwide, worldwide right? There's a, they're held in a lot of different cities around the world. Yeah, I know Interop, um, they have a couple times in the U.S., so one's in Las Vegas and another one's in New York, but it's also in uh, Tokyo and uh, Mumbai. Okay. Well, all of the 
trade shows we've talked about today are going to be on the show notes for this episode, so do refer to those uh, if you'd like more information and links to you know where you can learn about those. All right, now we're going to move on to our technical topic for the episode, and it's the new ASA version 8.3 release. Um, this is a big, big release for the ASA platform. Um, really, you know, with version uh, 7.0 and 8.0, there were some new features added, but a lot of the core fundamentals of the um, of the configurations stayed the same. This is probably one of the larger changes that we've had, specifically with um, configurations that have really stayed the same on the platform for many years. One of those being NAT. We've also got some changes uh, called like real IP. We're going to talk about that, but really, it's a sort of these changes are made uh, to the underlying architecture of the ASA software so that for future releases we can implement even more changes that are going to benefit our customers. So if the first question you're probably asking if you administer an ASA is, should I upgrade to version 8.3, right? And the answer is, it really depends. If you're, if you're running an ASA right now and version 8.3 doesn't offer you any additional features, it might not be a good idea to upgrade just because there will be some changes and you may want to just give it some time to you know, fully test upgrading to 8.3 in your lab and making sure that when you do upgrade, you're getting some new features out of that and not just upgrading because. Um, but for new customers that are starting out on the ASA firewall, uh, starting and configuring from scratch in version 8.3 could be very beneficial because um, obviously if you build those policies from scratch in version 8.3, the idea is that it should be simpler to do and that may benefit you in the future. So if you're an existing customer, I mean, what are the, some of the new features that, that you can expect in 8.3? So if you, I mean, we're going to touch on a lot of them today, but I think the more specifically is, is if I'm an existing customer, what could possibly drive me to upgrade yeah. to 8.3? And I think a lot of that is centered mm -hmm. on just a couple of key customer areas. So um, in the VPN space, uh, specifically WebVPN and clientless VPN, there's been a lot of customer demand for IE8 support where we don't technically officially support it in versions 8.2 and lower, but version 8.3 will be the first officially supported uh, version for uh, IE8, and we'll support that across um, a multitude of uh, OSs, you know, Vista, Windows 7, um, 32 and 64-bit. So that's one of the big, uh, probably the, the biggest uh, driver, I think. Okay, and, and we're going to talk uh, in sections here about the new version, the new features, and what they offer you. But first, one of the most important things is uh, definitely the new platform memory requirements for running version 8.3, and it's something to be aware of. So, with the the new release 8.3, um, we now have changed what are the base requirements for the whole host of firewall platforms that we have within our uh, firewalling arsenal, so to speak. Um, now, this is a change in the memory requirement. It is a requirement that you are running these with the correct uh, memory installed. Uh, just want to stress this point, and we stress it also in our release notes as well as in all of our documentation. And when you boot up, you get a When you boot up, it's going to tell you if you're not running the right memory. We want to make sure you understand this. On the 5540 and 5520 platforms, you must be running two gigs of memory. This is the current requirement with 8.3. We do have memory upgrades available. On the 5510 platform, it is a one gig memory requirement that must be satisfied. Again, there are upgrades. And for the 5505 platform, it's a little bit different. Uh, we require 512 megs of memory for all platforms, except for if you're running the base license. So if you're running base on your 5505, you can withstand the uh, existing 256 megs of memory. But if you're running anything like an unlimited uh, host license or a security plus license, those do require a 512 meg upgrade. Um, all of these memory requirements are there because this new version of code has a larger memory footprint. The features that are on there, we do add some additional features. They also require more memory. So 
this is essentially uh, you know, uh, a, a stopping point for a lot of customers. You want to make sure you have that memory upgraded prior to moving to 8.3. Otherwise, the box will let you know through both syslogs. Uh, I think it's uh, once a day you get a syslog, as well as in the show version output. Um, we basically let you know every way we possibly can. Uh, if you're looking to order memory, you'll want to touch base with your account team and your sales team to make sure that they can provide that to you. But it is currently available, and uh, you can get it through our partners as well. And one other question might be, you know, what about customers that are purchasing new ASAs? And so, um, in manufacturing, they've increased the base memory in those platforms as well, so that they will have, you know, will no longer manufacture ASAs with the lower memory densities, but they all come uh, with a higher memory density in order so that they can run 8.3 out the gate. So essentially, if you buy a new one, you do not need to purchase an upgrade to go with it. Right. If you buy, if you buy a new one today, then it will come with the upgraded memory. Absolutely. So one other um, interesting key uh, feature or change that was added to 8.3 is there's been some significant changes with licensing. And when I say significant changes, in the past, if you had ASAs and a failover set, then as you all know, the licenses must match. They must be identical on both boxes. And this is a problem for some of the licensed features that we actually charge for. For example, SSL VPN licenses, right? With two ASAs, one inactive, uh, one's active, and one standby, um, you can only terminate SSL connections on the active unit. But because of the licensing, it required you to purchase an SSL VPN license for both boxes. And that was a significant cost um, for customers. And it's not something that we really wanted to do, uh, but it was in the code. So now with the new 8.3, if you purchased, say, a uh, 1,000 SSL license on the primary, which is active, then the, the standby box does not have to have that 1,000 SSL license on it. If it does have it on it because you've already applied it, then what will happen is those two licenses will merge. And so the failover license would be the sum of those two counts. So it'll be 1,000 on the active, 1,000 on the standby. That equals a total aggregate count of 2,000. So you do get a benefit there. But for new users that are uh, purchasing ASAs and want to run them in failover, you only will need to buy the license for the one box. And that's, uh, I think, a significant benefit and a cost savings to the customers. So um, that's good to know. So there might be a question of what happens if you know, my primary has a license and it dies and I need to RMA it. Well, in that case, the, the secondary, which is standby and then becomes active, it knows what that old aggregated license was and it maintains it. And it will maintain it across reboots for up to 30 days. After 30 days goes by, then it will revert back to its permanent license key. So that gives you plenty of time to RMA the box and get a replacement, get it installed. Okay, and I think the one of the nice things for us in the TAC is that when we're trying to do recreates, um, the two ASAs that we have set up don't have to have the failover license match. Um, that's a big thing for us in the TAC, but for customers, I mean, really they've been looking for this for a long, long time. So, uh, so it's uh, good we finally implemented this feature. So the next topic we'll talk about that's new in 8.3 is the concept of objects. Objects were introduced to simplify configuration by providing a single IP to name mapping that's used throughout the config. So previously, changes to an IP address in your configuration would require a particular name to be changed all throughout the configuration. So you would do something like grep your config for a particular IP and then have to change each and every line associated with that IP. Now an IP change to a single configured object will result in an IP change for every use of that object in the configuration. For example, if you configure a network object for a server with an IP address of 10.1.1.1 and then use that object in five access lists and four NAT roles, changing the server's IP now requires only one configuration update to the object itself, rather than an update to each access list and each NAT role. 
So objects come in two flavors. There's network objects, which are IP addresses and can be a host, a subnet, or a range. And then there's also service objects, which are a protocol and optionally a, a specified port. A couple of uh, notes on objects. All NAT rules must use objects, and NAT can be specified within the object configuration itself. Access lists in 8.3 can use IP addresses or objects. Okay, I think, and the big thing to take away from this is the move towards a more object-oriented configuration style on the ASA. So, as like Blaine said, as before, where you know if you wanted to change, if you change an inside server IP address, you might have to change it in five different places in the config. But the goal here is so that you define that object, give it an IP address, and then re reference the object throughout the config. So hopefully that'll that'll simplify a lot of things. One thing Blaine mentioned was that NAT rules now use objects. Um, and that is one of the major changes with 8.3 from a configuration perspective. So previously, you know, we, if you're familiar with ASA and the FWSM, um, you know, your NAT configuration is used with the NAT, the static, and the global commands. Well, the static and the global commands have now been removed. The only um, NAT command you need is the NAT command. Um, that NAT command can be uh, issued in two places. It can be either issued under the object definition, okay, or there's what we call twice NAT, which is where you specify the destination in the NAT translation. So this is, this is very new. Um, if, say, you took Blaine's example, where you had an inside server at 10.1.1.1, you wanted to translate it to the outside. Well, you would specify how that server was translated within that object configuration. Okay, so we've, we've moved a lot of this NAT functionality inside the object. We call that object NAT. The, be the real benefit of this is that, well, for one, it can be interface agnostic. So you define the NAT translation under the object, and you don't necessarily have to specify an interface. And then the firewall just knows that anytime that server in your DMZ or server in the inside goes to any other interface, it's going to be translated a specific way. There's another way you can configure NAT on the firewall, and it's with the NAT command in global config mode, and we call that manual NAT. Another thing we support is one-to-many NAT. So you can translate one internal host to multiple outside global IPs. We didn't support that before version 8.3. So what that means is um, inbound connections from the outside can hit you know, any number of global IPs, and they'll all translate to the same local inside server. Yeah, I, I think I've seen a couple of customers with these kind of conditions where they have had an old service that they used to host, and many people out on the internet are hitting it, for example, and they're now migrating to a new server but they don't have the ability to necessarily change all those hosts that are out there. So, you know, hosts on the outside internet, they're accessing two separate IPs now, and they can have those now funneled to one if they're running the 8.3 with the one-to-many NAT. Yeah, we have customers with multiple customers of theirs that yeah. access the exact same server via different IPs, or yep. customers that migrate from one ISP to another, so yep. that helps them out as well. Yep. So, again, um, the NAT changes, if you upgrade from a previous version to version 8.3, the firewall is going to do its best to migrate the configuration over to use the new uh, syntax. And again, we're going to talk about that here in just a minute. But this is one reason why um, you, know, you definitely want to understand how this configuration works before you upgrade to version 8.3. But if you're a new uh, customer, you're just installing um, the ASA and you're running 8.3 from the start, then this object NAT should be pretty simple uh, for you to configure and get the ASA working uh, to do your translations. And the configuration guide is really going to have um, good examples of how this works, as well as um, lots of different deployment scenarios where it gives you examples of how this object NAT and uh, this twice NAT works. Yeah, and you know, just we've mentioned before that you know basically the, the NAT changes and what we'll talk about next, the ACL changes, 
are really the key major architectural changes um, to the CLI. However, if you are an ASDM user, then you really don't notice these changes because the rule table and the NAT tables look exactly the same to you. So, you know, for an ASDM user, um, you're not going to notice there's any difference. It's all going to be behind the scenes in the CLI. But if you are a CLI user, then you will notice these significant changes. And that's where, you know, we, we caution you to, you know, either try it out first in your lab if you have that capability, or just understand that once you upgrade, everything will automatically get converted for you, but be aware that the configuration is going to look significantly different for the NAT and ACL stuff. So don't freak out, you know, just know that that's coming. And we do have a nice uh, table in the configuration guide that shows you before and after and how things change. You know, it gives you ex examples of how the configuration was on A2 and then how it is on A3. Yeah, I remember uh, during our training, that was a very useful table just to, you know, kind of go through and, you know, because I've been supporting, you know, the 7.0 up to the A2, and that's what's ingrained in my mind and I'm sure in a lot of our customers' minds. Uh, and to just see that sort of one-to-one -one translation, you know, it's like looking through a language translator, you get to see what it equates to. And uh, that made reconfiguring mine uh, almost cake at that point. Okay. So definitely a useful piece of information. Now, one of the other features that is uh, present in the new 8.3 version is something called Real IP and Access Lists. Now, what this means is it's a, it's a bit of a fundamental change from what we're used to. Um, we'll take the common example of an interface-bound access list. Well, in the past, we used to reference for the post-natted address. So in the condition that Blaine, you mentioned a server 10.1.1, some host you got on the inside. Well, when that would get translated out to the internet on say 20.2.2.2, the access list we used to use on the internet interface would be referencing 20.2.2 when we would permit traffic inbound. Well, as part of the change to real IP, we're now referencing the real address or the internal address in this case. So that access list, which used to say, okay, I'm gonna permit you know, web traffic to my server at 20.2.2.2 now is going to reflect its internal address of 10.1.1.1, its real IP. Uh, as with the NAT changes, this does get uh, converted as the uh, ASA is upgraded to the 8.3 code. It's not something you need to change. The conversion process will take care of that for you. And it'll take care of converting uh, some of the access lists that are related to uh, your access group commands, your interface-bound access lists, uh, modular policy framework, uh, so if you're doing match commands in class maps as part of your inspection policy, that will also get converted. Uh, your botnet traffic filtering, if you've got a classify list, that as well is converted and also uses these real IPs. AAA match commands use real IPs, as does the WCCP redirection lists. And I think one other thing to mention too, just to um, you know, provide context too, is some things that some ACLs which aren't converted or that you would not use the real IP in are um, packet capture ACLs, right? Mm -hmm. So we, we do a lot with packet capture ACLs. In that case, the capture's done real low level, you know, as a packet enters the interface, so we're still going to use whatever IP is in the packet on that interface, so we won't use real IPs in packet capture. Um, another example is that downloadable ACLs from a AAA server. Uh, we will not use uh, the real IPs in those, um, as well as in VPN filter statements. So let's talk about the motivation for doing this. Why are we why, what motivates the change to use the real IP address in the uh, access lists? Well, I think it goes along the same way as uh, some of the, the whole concept of moving towards a more object-based uh, environment. You know, we're not necessarily talking about, uh, you know, what this host looks like when he's on a certain interface. You know, we're now in more of an interface agnostic approach, as you mentioned earlier. You know, we're saying, okay, well, we're going to let it into this host regardless of what that host's translation is on a specific interface. Right, and that's a, a great segue into the next feature that was introduced, which is called global ACLs. And with a global ACL, 
you actually create one ACL and you apply it globally. Um, so therefore, it doesn't matter what interface the packet comes in on, the global ACL is evaluated to determine if the packet should be permitted. And in that case, there's obviously a real benefit to having real IPs so that you have the same IP regardless of interface versus having the translated or the mapped IPs in that. Um, so global ACLs um, on users that are upgrading from previous versions, you know, 8.2 and earlier, there will be no global ACLs configured. Uh, but if you're um, brand new ASA out of the box and you're going to put 8.3 on it, then you can configure global ACLs instead of any interface ACLs. So you would just configure global ACLs and those would apply um, globally to all interfaces on the box. Now, if you did choose to apply an interface ACL to one interface and still have global ACLs, then the interface ACL would have priority. That would be evaluated first. And then the global ACL would also be applied after, you know, assuming the packet was permitted in the interface ACL, it would be checked by the global ACL. So you essentially well. have to kind of pass both security gates of ACLs to if, if you permit had that both, connection. Right. But the, the idea of global ACLs is more, you know, you choose one or the other. You choose interface dependent policies, in which case you have interface ACLs, or you choose interface agnostic policies and you have global you ACLs. Go to global. Um, and some of uh, the other, you know, competitive, competing products out in the market use global ACLs only, right? Uh, but in this case, it's more of a, you know, ease of implementation as we're, you know, changing kind of the, the thought process behind it is, you know, you define a policy that says, I'm going to permit certain traffic, certain networks to access my servers. Does it really matter which interfaces they ingress into to access that server? Right. If not, global ACLs are you know, a good compromise. It also can reduce significantly the number of ACLs. If you've got a lot of interfaces you know, and you're defining the same permit traffic everywhere, you know, global ACL can greatly simplify your uh, security policy. So another um, feature that was introduced in 8.3 and was actually introduced earlier in 8.2.2 in the 8.2.2 maintenance release, and I think we briefly talked about it on another episode of the podcast, was a Smart Call Home. Um, so Smart Call Home is also in 8.3.1. And what it does, it's the same, uh, it, it's a similar, I should say, feature to the Smart Call Home that's added in the 6500 and 7600 switches, as well as the 4500s and upcoming you know, Nexus line and stuff. Um, and, and what it does is it allows the ASA to send information to Cisco's Smart Call Home server over um, SSL TLS. And so that information can be things like a scrubbed config where we'll parse out passwords and uh, um, IP addresses, and we don't send that information, but we'll send, you know, the sanitized version of the config in. We'll send traffic information. We'll send failover status, so which box is active, which box is standby. Um, we'll s send uh, some additional information uh, up to the Smart Call Home server, and it allows you to log into the Smart Call Home portal and see all the devices listed in your network and, you know, which one's active, which one's standby, what licenses are applied to them. Um, you can look at, you know, past configurations. You can tell if there's been a failover event. You can look and see if um, there's any field notices out for your device, if there's any PCERT advisories that are applicable to your device. Additionally, if um, there's a power supply failure or if the temperature on a device gets too hot, it'll send a message to the Smart Call Home server, which will then automatically open a TAC case and, you know, the TAC will be notified. They'll start working the problem and then they'll contact you automatically. Um, and that's all part of Smart Call Home. Um, some additional things that you can do with Smart Call Home is in addition to contacting the Cisco database, it can also send out emails. And so this is useful to the TAC and also to customers and if you're trying to troubleshoot a problem or want to be periodically notified about something. And what you can do is say you're, um, you know, the TAC we might use is if we're troubleshooting a memory leak case where, mm -hmm. hey, the memory's constantly depleting on the box over time and we don't really know what's causing it yet. Well, we can set up a trigger 
to have Smart Call Home run show mem detailed, you know, show uh, clock and some additional commands and run that periodically, say every hour, and email that in to attack case or email it to attack engineer. And we can get that and automatically, you know, get that listing at a periodic interval and then be able to further troubleshoot that issue. So there's a lot of um, advantages that I think we're going to be able to leverage in the troubleshooting aspects to do things on a periodic basis. And so that's kind of exciting for us as well. Yeah, I know in the past for those kind of cases, we've done things like monitoring scripts that would log in and check cert certain statistics and email us. And those always have a tendency to, uh, you know, not work exactly as we had hoped. So it's good to see that we've got this kind of functionality. So when, I, I know that the, it's in our ASA code, but when can customers actually take advantage of this new system? So for the back-end portal, um, it's SCH version 3.1, which is scheduled for uh, the May timeframe. Um, so as long as that doesn't slip, you know, you'll be able to register your ASDA devices starting in May to the portal. But for the troubleshooting, if you want to send periodic show commands or, you know, some commands on a periodic interval, you can use that today. You don't need to register the device with a back-end portal at all. That's independent from uh, the portal, so. That's pretty cool. So there are some features that we didn't go into detail on, and I'll just list those out for you here, and those are also referenced in the 8.3 release notes, so you can read up on them. Browser support for clientless WebVPN for IE8 on 32-bit and 64-bit systems are supported, and that's for XP, Vista, Windows 7, and OS X 10.6, the 64-bit Snow Leopard. IPv6 for Ike version 1 for land-to-land -land tunnels. Password encryption, inclu including a master passphrase. Smart tunneling is supported on 32-bit and 64-bit platforms, uh, as well as port forwarding, which is uh, only supported on 32-bit platforms. Windows 2000 and OS X 10.4 are no longer supported for clientless browser-based access for uh, clientless VPN. So now I'll talk about the upgrade process and how you actually get from 8.2 to 8.3. So the upgrade is fairly straightforward, not much different than going uh, from any other minor version to the next minor version. You change the boot command and, and reboot. When the box boots up for the first time on 8.3, it's going to do this config conversion that we've been talking about all throughout the podcast here, where it translates your NAT commands and your ACLs, et cetera. And you'll end up with uh, an, a system running 8.3 with your nice new 8.3 config. And it creates a couple of files on Flash for you. Those files include one called upgrade startup errors and a date.log. And that includes any errors or conditions or notes, messages that the uh, box encountered when it first booted up 8.3. Yeah, it doesn't have to be errors. It's informational messages as well. So, you know, just because you see that file there uh, doesn't mean there was any errors. But we do recommend customers to do a more on that file um, from the ASA, so more disk zero and then the, the, the start error file. Or you can copy it off via TFTP um, to have a look at it. But just read through it, and it'll give you a lot of notes on what it converted and if there happened to be any errors in the conversion process, it would be included in there, and that's what you would need to send into the TAC. And it, is it always created, even if there are? I, I believe it is, because there's always um, an informational message that says, um, we're migrating uh, the ACLs to real IP. Right. So yeah. as long as you've got you know, uh, real IP or NAT in your config, then those informational messages would get generated, and they should be written to the file. OK, so definitely take a look at that file. Um, it may not be errors at all. So what, what's also included on the flash is your uh, existing 8.2 config. So what is that used for? Well, if you want to actually move from 8.3 back to 8.2, you need this configuration because the translation only goes one way. So to downgrade the ASA from 8.3 to 8.2, you can issue the configuration command downgrade, 
and follow it with the image name and the configuration on Flash. So you point the downgrade command at, at the image and the configuration on Flash, and you reboot the box, and uh, it boots back up on 8.2 with your previous configuration. Yeah, and, and that's really key. Um, because a lot of customers, you know, we're not used to having to specify a config file when we downgrade. You just load the older version of code and reboot. But because there were such significant changes to the configuration, and we had to have a config migration process to go from 8.2 to 8.3, um, we can't have a reverse config migration process. So instead, the 8.3 upgrade process saves that copy of your existing config prior to the config conversion. And so in order to downgrade, you must specify that previously saved config file. Um, if you don't, what will happen is it will boot the 8.3 config on the 8.2 image and the CLI will just reject all those 8.3 commands that it doesn't know about, which will be, you know, basically all your NAT changes and objects and, you know, you're going to have some serious issues. So, um, you know, definitely if you want to downgrade, you must use a downgrade command. It's kind of like when we went from 6.3 to 7.0 on the PICs, if you, it's any old timers out there, remember that. In order to downgrade from 7.0 to 6.3, you had to use a downgrade command there as well. So this is no different. So one additional nice feature for customers running in a failover configuration is that the upgrade from 8.2 to 8.3 can be done as a zero downtime upgrade. Right, and how that works is, uh, you know, no different from previous versions is, you know, you'll take uh, one box and load the 8.3 image on it and reboot it, and the pure box would then be active at that time. Um, the newly upgraded box comes up, boots up with 8.3, it uh, reads a startup config, which is an 8.2 startup config, and automatically converts it to 8.3. At that point, it uh, forms the failover uh, relationship with the peer, and the peer is active. So it then, the active peer pushes the config back over to the 8.3 box, which then converts the config again <laughs> one more time from 8.2 to 8.3. Um, but you, in the end, you end up with an 8.3 converted config on the peer, which is in standby mode. At that point, you just upgrade um, the other peer, which is running 8.2 to 8.3, and you're done. Um, just upgrades and converts to config and failover syncs again. So you can do zero downtime upgrades, um, as Blaine said, uh, with 8.2 to 8.3. Now what we don't want you to do though is in this case we don't really want you to run uh, 8.3 in one box and 8.2 on the other box for any extended period of time. And in other versions it was kind of okay, you know, especially in maintenance release differences or interim release differences, you can run those things for, you know, weeks or months um, and it's not really an impact. But on major um, config conversions, it's the, you know, running two different versions on the ASA pair and failover is really there just for the upgrade procedure. It's not there to be run for any extended period of time. Yeah, the last thing you would probably want is have your older version box reload and then try to sync a 8.3 config over to an 8.2 box. It would be the same thing as downgrading by just simply changing your boot variable and not following the downgrade procedure. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, well, for more information on version 8.3, uh, go ahead and check out the show notes for the page. Uh, we're going to have links to the release notes for 8.3, the upgrade instructions, the downgrade instruction instructions, as well as the uh, command reference in the config guide. So one other thing um, I guess we can add here for our listeners is, you know, we've talked about, you know, the main requirement of upgrading is the memory upgrade, and that's required um, for support. It's also required because the features are going to need it. Now, yeah. you might ask, hey, I've got an ASA in my lab, and, you know, can I upgrade that to 8.3 just to play with it while I'm waiting for the memory upgrade? The answer is yes, you can. Um, for the boxes that are memory constrained, meaning like the 5510, and in some cases the 5505, Depending on your config size and some other things, you know, you might run out of memory, but if you don't, you know, it's definitely worth a try. You can play with it while you're waiting for the memory upgrade. But 
for anything to be officially supported or for production, do not do that. Make sure you wait for the memory upgrade uh, before you actually upgrade to 8.3. But if you just want to play with it, you know, it's not going to hurt anything if the traffic through the box stops because you ran out of memory, then, you know, sure, knock yourself out. Go ahead and, uh, and load it on a box. Okay, well, that's it for episode number 10 of the Tax Security Podcast. We hope that this has been uh, helpful for those of you who are interested in version 8.3 for the ASA. Thanks for listening. As always, we want to know what you think of the show. Please contact us via our email address at securityshow at cisco.com. And we'd like to know what you like about the show, what you don't like about the show, and any future topics you'd like us to discuss. We'll read and respond to every uh, email that you guys send. Uh, our web page for the podcast is at www.cisco.com slash go slash taxsecuritypodcast. And from there, you can download all of the episodes as well as view all the show notes for the episodes. You can always open a TAC case at www.cisco.com slash TAC or by calling 1-800-553-2447. And join us next episode where we'll have a special guest and we'll be discussing troubleshooting WebVPN technologies on the ASA. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tax Security Podcast. To listen to more episodes and to view the show notes for each episode, go to www.cisco.com slash go slash taxsecuritypodcast.